Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to Samuel Adams Returns. Those anti-federalists, you know what? They did. They got it right from the perspective that they were predictive of everything that is going on today when you lose your morality, when you lose your faith, when you take and you put everything ahead of God, which we've seen so many times in history. This is Tom Navolis, your host, and I am delighted to say that, yes, I am back real-time this week. Uh, we did something we have not done in years. I mean, literally in years. We took some time off, and we traveled, and we went down to Texas to see our daughter. It was a great time. We really enjoyed it, but uh, we're glad to be back, and I'm glad that you did take the time to either at least look at the blog post and pay attention to those at where, look over my shoulder for those that are watching the video, samueladamsreturns.net. And that's where everybody else can take and find us and uh, enjoy the actual references for today's program. And I encourage you to go there. As well as now, we're able to receive different types of donations from you. And again, Samuel Adams Returns is a for-profit nonprofit in Ohio. Well, how's that work, Tom? Well, we have the Ohio nonprofit status, but in fact, we're not filing with the feds because we don't want to fall into all of their 501c3 or 4 insanities. We want you to be able to know that we're taking and able to say whatever's necessary to be said on every topic that's out there without any types of restrictions whatsoever. So we do appreciate taking and, um, you know, donating as much as everybody else is hitting you up to donate this year. We appreciate you donating to samueladamsreturns.net so we can expand into other uh, locations on regular radio uh, throughout the U.S. So with that, let's kind of jump over and into uh, today's program. In total, if you go to the newsletter at samueladamsreturns.net, I have titled this program Constitution Null, Political theory. And the the essence of this is kind of like wrapping up this year, if you will, in the next several weeks as we approach Christmas and the new year, is in relationship to political theory. And that foundationally, that is what the pulpits of the founding era were very clear on, was political theory. Political theory was taught from the pulpits, which meant that they started with the liberty that is given in Christ in such a way that it, as I always say, is extensible, the gospel is extensible into every aspect of our lives. And for the last almost 150 plus years, Oh, gosh, we're coming on to almost 200 years now, as we're seeing in these uh, early 20s of, what, the 21st century. Uh, 
that it was right about that time uh, of 1825, 1830, definitely 1850, where we saw the theology change in America in such a way that the idea of Reformation teaching, the whole idea of that political essence that was historically foundationally there has disappeared, except for few small pockets of Orthodox churches. I want to focus with you today on what I'm going to be using as the primary reference for the program, and it's called The New England Clergy and the American Revolution. And this book is by Alice M. Baldwin. And she did this as part of, a, I think, a Ph.D. program that she wrote her thesis and then took and moved it into a full book format. Now, if you look again, 1928, you know, we're looking at a hundred years after the book that I love so much. What? The clergy and what? The clergy and those other ministers of the American Revolution that was written in 1828. Wow. You know, you have to go back and you have to reset into that history so that you're able to then bring forward. So here we're not, I guess I'm going to have to wait until we get to 2128 so that I can, you know, bring all of this forward. Well, we can't wait. We have to move now. And I'm saying that the Constitution is null. The real question is, what does that mean? So if we look at, as I mentioned in the newsletter that went out to those that listen to it, read it, and look at it, is that Webster defines, and this is Webster Dictionary of 1828, so let's get back to where the founders understood language. 1828, it says, to annul, to deprive of validity, to destroy. So a modern online dictionary that uh, is part of many people's systems is that it defines null as having no legal or binding force invalid. So is it when you wake up every day, when you take and you turn on whatever it is that you do to listen to all the talking heads or you take and you open up your browser or your favorite app to read whatever it is from your favorite pundit, uh, you sit there and you look at it and you go, ah, man, look at all these things that are going on. Look at the way that these bureaucrats in particular don't give a flying rip about what the Constitution has to say. I mean, just take it at face value. And what you're hearing again now with this Omnicon, you know, the next iteration of the Chicom flu is that, you know, there you have the king of the bureaucrats in America, Dr. Fauci, taking and doing what? He's out there taking and again, destroying the ideas of constitutionalism by bureaucratic rule. And then you have 
all of the political, I don't know, ponies, the political punies, the political, oh, well, I guess whoever they are political that are elected, especially at the federal level, that are capitulating again in America. And we're going to talk about some of that when we get into the next two segments. What's going on with that capitulation? But what's worse? What in my mind and what I've talked about for decades as being worse is the fact that there are so many pulpits that are just right alongside. They're giving in, and they have no idea of the truth of covenant, nor the truth of what that means in relationship to constitutionalism. So what we have is that every level of government, whether it's at that federal level, whether it is at the state level, whether it's down to your county or local city, by virtue of all of the various bureaucratic rules that are being accepted by the political class, they are making the Constitution null. And that means not only the Constitution at the federal level, but at the state level. Let me give you a, a real basic example. The basic example is here in the state of Ohio. I mentioned oh, a couple, you know, three weeks ago about a House Bill 435 and how it is definitely and without question for any minded, simple-minded person that reads the Ohio State Constitution, Article 13, Section one, and I'm going to read it verbatim for you so that you can understand it, maybe, unless you're a political class, then I don't think you'll be able to understand it. If you're elected, even in the Republicans elected, because we got stabbed in the back by the Republicans, Republicans at all in the House legislature, Article 13 is corporations. The first article in the Ohio Constitution says, special acts conferring corporate powers prohibited. It reads specifically this way, Section 1. The General Assembly shall pass no special act conferring corporate powers. Wow. So here we have that. We had House Bill 435. It kind of got sunk. But then get this. The legislature of Ohio's house, in their great wisdom, without taking and identifying to the people, their constituents, took a bill dealing with the hours of serving alcohol, which is HB 218, House Bill 218, that's all it was, kind of like two paragraphs, and inserted into it the language 
almost verbatim of House Bill 435. So here you have bureaucrats all over the place that don't care about our rights under the Article 1 of the Ohio Constitution in particular. And then you have the legislature that has no sense of morality or oath-holding relationship to the people and are violating Article 13 of the Ohio Constitution. With now a alcohol bill, a bar bill of HB 218. I think they're all drunk is what it is. They're all drunk. But Tom, what's that got to do with anything else? Well, what it has to do with the Constitution being null is by taking and giving extraordinary powers, which they are within that bill, they're obviating the Constitution and anything else in any of the bills of rights for the people. It becomes extremely interesting when you take and you look at what this political class is doing and thinking that they're doing something correct. They should do more of what Florida did in all of a special session if they really want to step the mandates into the ground and send them to hell where they belong. Now, I want to get across two points in today's program. And in this week's program, what I'm dealing with is the political theology, because that's what it comes down to. What do these bureaucrats and politicians believe in the deepest portions of their soul, in the every aspect of their mind? And let me remind you, in that loose definition of political theology is often used to denote religious thought about political principled questions, as well as used in discussions of the ways in which theological concepts or ways of thinking relate to politics. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I have to take, and as we close out this section, to say is that Sam Adams clearly understood his Reformation biblical theology because he learned it from his youth. It was impressed by his mother. His father lived it in everything that he did, as well did Sam, so that we can understand what liberty means and what was preached from the pulpits. So come on back in the next segment as we deal more with political theology and the Constitution null. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the second set of Samuel Adams Returns. Those anti-federalists, they absolutely predicted where we would be. And as I said in that first segment, yeah, when you don't have a good theology, your morality then is only based on that which you create around yourself. And for the most part, what we have and what we've been seeing over the last 150 years is that degradation of the Reformation solid theological thinking in such a manner that it has impacted how liberty is viewed and that unless it is some kind of squishy-wishy way, easiest way I can describe it, 
hey, I'm not swab and debonair like a lot of other folks out there. So you get the Tom Novolis rendition of things. This squishy theology, this feel-good stuff, and, you know, get on the bandwagon because, you know, Christian Marxism is good. Christian Marxism is because Jesus said, go feed the poor. Jesus said, give up your coat. Jesus said, all of these love one another and don't be involved. And then Paul comes along and he goes on and says, oh, wait a minute, you know, you have to submit to your rulers. And then Peter writes in Hebrews, oh, just don't honor those rulers, but take and bow down to what they have to say. I know, I paraphrased, I didn't give you the exact scriptures, but if you take and you go again to samueladamsreturns.net and look at the written portion of it, they will tell you to go there to Romans 13 and Hebrews 13 and refer to those exact scriptures. But at the same time, hey, you know, that's what's going on throughout all of modern history. Oh, I could take that scripture and I can make it whatever I want it to be. And, you know, we can take and, yeah, we'll, we'll take the, the idealistic components of it and the real meaning of the hard component and belief system that there's only one God that Jesus Christ was born as we're coming into Christmas time he died and he rose from the dead and the fact is that it is trinitarian in that he is the Godhead as well, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. End of story. Those are some of the core beliefs in the Reformation, and it meant a lot. I want to kind of like what you're hearing, though, out there is all of just the political talking heads. All you're getting, for the most part, unless you listen to a few select Orthodox reformed types of pastors, you're not going to get that type of truth. And what the worst part is, is that what's happened in Christianity, in evangelical circles, as well as it has happened throughout academia, is you got to go out there and get your pilot high and deep, your PhD. You have to develop all of these ideas. You have to develop all of these different perspectives and concepts and, you know, throw your own spin on it so that it's not plagiarism. Well, that has been the influences into the American political system, especially over, yeah, let's say, I'll say, let's see, 1940 to now, so the last 80 plus years, 100 years, when we take and we start looking at some of the other work that has been done out there since what? Karl Marx wrote in 1848. So, wow, we're way into it now and what has happened in the corruption of the churches, which I, I annotated for you so much in those 45 goals last week. So if you missed my 
expanded description of those 45 goals of the Communist Party in America in particular, I highly recommend that you go back to SamuelAdamsReturns.net and look at last week's blog post and take that in. Because I got to tell you, every one of the bureaucrats and the politicians has a political theology. Because there's nothing that happens without some form of theological thinking. What is your belief system? How is that applied into your life? And all these bureaucrats, now think of this, all these bureaucrats. Fauci last week goes out and says, I represent science, making science what? A religion. Science is a religion right now. It is not the mechanics of science as we would think it is. Oh, yeah, there are those that are doing research. But when you get to the politicized, bureaucratic perspective of policymaking, sorry, it is no longer science. It becomes political theology. Now, one component that I want to touch on with that. It goes to, oh gosh, which I haven't taken you down the path in a long, long time, is the study of Gramsci. Now, Gramsci was a, what, an Italian Marxist. He ended up being thrown in jail a lot by Mussolini, but he was a Marxist. The interesting thing about Gramsci was that He saw what happened with Lenin. He saw what happened with Stalin. He saw all of this just sickle and hammer stuff. And he started thinking about it, going, no, we got to be a little bit smarter about this. So that's where Saul Alinsky is actually a Gramskyite, as I call him. And one of the areas within those 45 goals of corrupting religion, Gramsci's hierarchy, if you if you get to understand it, and, and this is from Marxist Theory, uh, is a website out there by the Marxists themselves, and what they were talking about here in respect to religion is that what Gramsci does, he understands all of these world ideas, and firstly, he divides opinions into common sense and good sense. And as you well know, I always say common sense is not common anymore. And this is one of the reasons. He says that common sense is simply received ideas that are widely held and may turn out to be utterly wrong. Common sense is wrong, ultimately. Good sense is opinions which have gained from empirical experiences and are therefore closer to true reality. The This is epistemological criteria, and this is what it is. But he also has an ontological set, philosophy, religion, and folklore. Philosophy enjoys the highest status of knowledge. Here it is. It supersedes religion and folklore by virtue of its scientific rationality. Gramsci does not mean religion in a strictly confessional sense, but as it's a set 
of beliefs which correspond to a sense of moral conduct. In this sense, religion is an element of fragmented common sense. And what did he say about common sense? It always doesn't work right. It's not always correct. He argues, whereas folklore is usually reserved for quite primitive cultures and social values having more in common with superstition than common sense. So Trotsky also said that common sense also contains the kernel of dialectics as it could contradict formal logic. Socialists should not be ambivalent about people's common sense approach to problems of the class struggle or everyday life, though the struggle is to transform common sense into good sense into a revolution of conscience. I, I, I had to stop there. I, did you get all of that? You know, if you download the podcast from SamuelAdamsReturns.net, you can probably go back through this. This is within somewhere within that 10-minute mark of the uh, second segment. So I, I would say that the idea, did you get this, is to transform common sense into good sense into a revolution consciousness. So when we see what has been happening in our educational system, in our universities, what we have seen, that which has been happening in our churches, in the transition, the transformation, especially within the last 80 years in particular, to the fact that you have primary, key leaders in the evangelical movement, evangelical churches who are woke, there goes no common sense. They are going now for what? This common sense is not there. You have to go with this other type of sense, good sense. It makes good sense, doesn't it? It makes good sense to think about critical race theory. It makes good sense to think about putting on muzzles. It makes good sense to take and do what? Go get the jab because the new iteration of the Chicom flu just happens to be out and we don't even know enough about it to make any sense of. So in essence, it's all nonsense. Well, all right. Well, Tom, where are you going to go with all of this now? I mean, my goodness, you just took us and, and walked through all of this nonsensical stuff. But, you know, how is it that that Constitution is null? The Constitution null. The Constitution being obviated. Well, I already took you through some of that. And, and just look at it, what's going on in your state. Let's go look at it. When it comes to looking at your election laws, let's go look at it in your educational system. Let's think about this in such a way that you have school boards who have their own police departments, like down in Texas, that are going out and arresting parents at home because they came to the school board meeting and asked questions about different things that affect their children. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I think that's extremely interesting. And then so where is your constitutional right 
both in the state of Texas, as I've showed you before, in that link to the state of Texas Constitution, as well as the federal Constitution, is you have a First Amendment right to do what? You have a First Amendment right in the federal Constitution to take and redress, ask the questions. In most state constitutions, you have a right to petition the elected. You have a right to take to redress all that which is going out. And most importantly, yeah, you have a right to the freedom of religion. And you also have a right to speak your mind, even if it is against the political class. Oh, okay. So that's all being ignored. That's all being ignored in the name of uh, you're assaulting us. And, and, you know, remember that those that stand constitutionally and you exercise your right of redress, they're either ignored, you're talked down to, you're castigated, called names, and even assaulted with legal proceedings. And as I already mentioned, arrested by school board police of all things. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Sam Adams, as well as the other founders and anti-federalists, and even the Federalists on this instance, they knew that Great Britain was acting in these despotic and tyrannical ways. We have it going on right here in a constitutional republic. But remember, when the Constitution is null, the Constitution null then who cares? Tyranny will step its way forward. Despotism will arise because there is no moral guidance when every man operates according to his own political theology. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to this final segment of Samuel Adams Returns, those anti-federalists. They got it right, predictively. They were so spot on, and they had the foundational fundamentals of what? The biblical Reformation preaching, and we don't have in the majority of the churches today. Now, I wanted to take you back through some of the things just in a quick review from uh, the first and second segment. And in the beginning of all of that, this is Tom Novolis, your host, and I'm delighted to be back with you live. Uh, we are taking and beginning now the donates with a donate button at the website. So please go there and donate to Sam Adams Returns. And please remember that although we are registered in Ohio as a nonprofit, we are not filing with the state. So we're kind of a conundrum in that we're a for-profit nonprofit, so we have to file our taxes. And what that means is that your donations are not tax deductible. Important, I guess, to some. But hey, if you have a chance, I know you're getting hounded for money. But uh, if you think this is worthwhile, please take the time to donate. Now, we're talking about the whole idea that the Constitution is null, and as a review of the first and second segment, the reason that it's null is primarily that everything is being ignored by the bureaucrats as well as the politicians. 
the whole political class, every level of government from the federal all the way down to dog catcher, if they're elected or even appointed as a bureaucrat. What we're seeing is that here in this segment, we're going to talk a little bit about the courts, but I wanted to remind you that where the power always was for America and defining liberty and the ideas of political theology was at the pulpits. And over the number of years, over the last century and a half, at least, I take it all the way back to the 1850s, but we'll talk about the last 80 years in so many different ways, is that the political theology has gone the way of a cow on spring grass. Now, if you're a farmer, you can clearly understand what I'm saying with that statement. But what's happened is that all of our liberties are under assault because the pulpits have not been doing their jobs. And as I always say, you've heard me say this hundreds of times already, so I'll just keep repeating it till it gets driven home, inculcated into your understanding, is that the Federalists believed the pulpits would do their jobs and that they would continue to preach the foundational Reformation truths. And therefore, we would always have a people as well to select. We would have a people that is foundationally morally grounded in such a way that then we would raise up a political leaders from the people to represent us well, and even within the limitation of bureaucracy. And that's one another program. That's for next week on political theology. When we're going to talk about covenant, we're going to talk about bureaucracies, we're going to talk about limited government from the political theological perspective. But for today, I want to take and bring together right now from the reference book, The New England Clergy and the American Revolution by Alice M. Baldwin. This book was written in 1928. And one of the points that she makes in there, as we go through it, and I'm going to read some quotes from just just the introduction alone, and then you're going to have to delve into the book on your own. The references are there, samueladamsreturns.net, so that as you go look for the blog post for today, you'll see that that is the reference where you can download the PDF of that book. Now, one of the things, as I've already mentioned, in a minor degree, is that the pulpits had the power. The pulpits were the most powerful element that actually taught the people what? Political theology. Political theology. We're going to talk about that here in just a minute. One of the references that I do want to make to you also here is a a video. I have three of my programs that uh, you can go look at the links that talk about uh, the moral degradation of our modern society from the pulpits, okay? Because I want to make it absolutely clear that if you think you're going to get a political solution to everything that's going on, 
Well, you might as well start with a really big rock and a wooden mallet and see how long it takes you to chip away at that really big rock with a wooden mallet and make it into sand. That, that's fundamentally what just looking at a political solution is all about. Because as I have stated very profoundly in the first two segments, is that all of these that are engaged right now in political warfare, they have their own political theology. And it has many contrived ideas, mostly centering around themselves. But let's get to some of this in the book. Uh, let's see. When, <laughs> uh, you know, if I have, if you haven't seen already that I've been pretty hard hitting, one of the things that I want to make sure that you understand is I'm not suave and articulated like you know, what I would say Doug Wilson or many other people of his stature are. I have a high regard for that. And that is the other blog post that I want you to go watch is what Doug did this week on our modern society. The link is there for you to go look at that blog. It's a video blog. Uh, it's at SamuelAdamsReturns.net. So one of the things my dad taught me, him being a semi-pro boxer, was the idea that, uh, you know what, if you're going to hit, hit hard, hit very hard, make sure your opponent understands that you're there. And one of the things that I want to say clearly is don't be a coward and not watch that V-blog by Doug because you don't like Doug Wilson. You need true courage now or very soon so you can deal with what's going to happen in the next 18 months. So you better get some courage and start listening to people like Doug who actually talk and teach and preach like those foundational pastors did. So, you know what? There's few and far in between. Anyway, your political activism doesn't mean a single thing and is not going to last until you understand political theology and you need to get on board with that. So, let's see here. Some quotes from uh, Alice Baldwin. You can find this in the introduction in her book. One factor that which was recognized by contemporary writers as especially significant, but which, until recent years, has been touched but lightly by latter authors is religious. Men of the time asserted that the dissenting clergy and especially the Puritan clergy of New England were among the chief agitators of the revolution and, after it began, among the most zealous and successful in keeping it alive. Hey, pastors, you're supposed to be engaged like this. We don't have liberty. We have all of these things happening because, hmm, you're not the chief agitator from the pulpit. You don't preach Puritan truth and Reformation truth. And third, you're not zealous about keeping it what? alive. 
J.T. Adams in his first two volumes on New England history are especially notable for their emphasis upon the significance of the religious factor and the work of the clergy. Adams, although he gives great weight to the clergy, especially during the 17th century, does not recognize sufficiently the part they played in teaching political theory to the people both before and after 1763. And in giving to those theories religious sanction, nor does he emphasize sufficiently the bearing of ecclesiastical quarrels and religious movements of the 18th century upon the development of the spirit of independence, of love of liberty, and the use of arguments which support it. So now, for those that are reading this on the blog post, I did do some emphasis in here, but I want to continue with this introduction. In short, the intimate relation of New England ministers to the thought and life of 18th century New England has never been adequately developed. That is the purpose of this study. First, to make clear the similarity, the identity of Puritan theology and fundamental political thought. Second, to show how the New England clergy preserved, extended, and popularized the essential doctrines of political philosophy, thus making familiar to every church-going New Englander long before 1763, not only the doctrine of natural rights, the social contract, and the right of resistance, get that one, I've talked about that a number of times, but also the fundamental principle of American constitutional law that government, like its citizens, is bound by the law, and when it transcends its authority, it acts illegally. We have so much of government acting illegally and transcending beyond constitutionalism, it should make your head spin. But the author, this author, this Alice Baldwin, believes that here can be traced a direct line of descendants from 17th century philosophy to the doctrines underlying the American Revolution and uh, the making of written constitutions, federal as well as state. It is hoped that the study may explain in some measure why these theories were so widely held, so dearly cherished, and so deeply inwrought into American constitutional doctrine. And finally, an attempt is made to present in some detail the activities of the clergy in the events of the revolution and in establishing the institutions of the newborn states. So, ladies and gentlemen, the whole ideas of constitutionalism is part of what this book is all about, and it all is derived from what was happening at the pulpits. And quite frankly, it is the pulpits that have had the power. The pulpits have the power right now. And we see this in the way that they're preaching all of this wokeness, all of this, oh, I'm so sorry for being white. Oh, I'm so sorry for being male. Oh, I'm so sorry for being 
human, you know. Anybody that's down that path, I, I, I highly recommend that you go find a Doug sermon on it because I'm not necessarily able to take a pastoral tone on that. I'm going to take what my dad taught was the old punch in the nose tone. And the punch in the nose tone is, why don't you go find yourself a pastor and church leadership that will stand on the foundational principles, the total extensibility of the gospel where it's preached and it's taught you how to implement it in your life, in every aspect of your life. Hey, just wrapping it up, Sam Adams understood that. The Anti-Federalists understood that. And even a good number of Federalists understood it. What do you understand? What do you understand about political theology? What are you going to do about it to preserve our liberties?